0: Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener.
1: Welcome to At Your Service on X Radio. Brad Young sitting in this evening from now until 11 p.m. So uh, buckle up, phone the neighbors, wake the kids. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things tonight, including we're going to be talking to uh, an author about how uh, how the left, how the liberal liberal politics have crept in to the churches in America. And he's uh, an author, Lucas Miles. We're going to be talking to him uh, after the break. We're also going to be talking to someone from the Heritage Foundation in the nine o'clock hour to break down this announcement today that the Supreme Court is going to actually take up a real abortion case. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what do I mean is that All the cases that we've seen really since 1992, I guess, uh, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, all the cases have been dealing with just restrictions on abortions and whether those are or are not constitutional. But by taking up this case in Mississippi, and you heard it on CBS News at the top of the hour, by taking up this case in Mississippi, it's just frankly dealing with banning abortions after 15 weeks. Uh, and so this is going to be the first frontal assault case on abortion rights in America uh, since 1992. And we've had a certainly a large turnover of the Supreme Court since then. So we're going to break all of that down with Sarah Perry in the nine o'clock hour. She's with the Heritage Foundation. And uh, she was formerly with the uh, Civil Rights Department, with the Department of Justice, and she, uh, she knows what's going on in this area. So we're going to talk to her at the 9 o'clock hour. In the meantime, if you want to listen to us, there are lots of ways for you to listen to Camo X. Of course, 1120 AM, legendary. We've also recently added 98.7 FM, which if you're in the St. Louis area, I mean, that's where I always listen to Camo X when I'm driving around in St. Louis area because it, it sounds as good as the streaming and, of course, you can stream it on any any device that you have, including your phones or Alexa or any other kind of streaming devices. Or you can even catch us at 102.5 HD2 uh, or on the Odyssey app because wherever you go, we go. And that's what we're doing right now with Odyssey. Also, if you want to shoot me an email, you know, I'm usually the legal analyst here on Camel X like to talk about legal issues, but if you want to send me an email, I always enjoy hearing from listeners. My email address for my law firm, my law firm is Harris Dowell, Fisher and Young. And you can email me at be young because, well, frankly, it's good to be young. Be young at harrisdowell.com, H A R R I S is in Sam, D is in David. O W E L L dot com. A couple of things I want to hit here while we have a few moments, and that is you heard, uh, you heard CBS News. You heard Sean Michael Lyle talk about it. The uh, mask policies are getting revised uh, because of the CDC's surprise announcement on Thursday evening. But the question becomes, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to private businesses. Businesses can still enact whatever policies that they want. So even though the CDC has said, rip off those face diapers, my friends, if you're fully Vaccinated, don't need them. Uh, at this point, uh, businesses are differing based upon businesses. So I tried to compile a list of some of the places where you might go over the next few days here in St. Louis at Schnucks. Fully vaccinated customers do not have to wear masks, but employees still do at least, at least for now. Now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he's uh he's formerly with uh, the CDC and. And uh, uh, you've probably seen him a lot. He's on CNBC television quite a bit. He said that there shouldn't be any mask mandates anywhere in the country by June or July, which to me is very encouraging. But for now, at Schnooks, no masks are required if you're fully vaccinated. But if you're still working there, they, they make the employees wear masks. Deerberg's. Deerberg says it's sorting through the new guidelines and will update its mask policy this week. So at least as of when I was prepping the show earlier today, Deerbergs had not yet made a decision on that, but look for something soon. Now, here maybe this may be the most important location in St. Louis, Ted Drews. Who doesn't love Ted Drews? If you go there, if you're a customer, you have to wear a mask when you go up to the window to order, but after that, rip that thing off because you can't eat a concrete, if you're wearing a mask, you just can't do it. If you did, it would be, you know, kind of fabric-y and plastic You don't want that. So you can don't have to wear it, but you do have to wear the mask when you place your order. Six Flags. Masks are still required for now, which really at Six Flags, uh, you know, the way a lot of folks uh, smell when they're at Six Flags, you might actually want to wear a mask. I mean, come on, think about it. You're thinking that safe? I just said what you're thinking. Because when I'm at Six Flags and I look at the people, the sweaty people walking around who are wearing clothing that is completely inappropriate for their body type, I might be happy to be wearing a mask. So even though I don't uh, like to wear a mask, I might do that at Six Flags, you know, regardless. I mean, 10 years from now, I might still be wearing a mask at Six Flags. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, The St. Louis Aquarium, fully vaccinated customers and employees not required to wear a mask over at the St. Louis Aquarium. How about the art museum? Uh, if you're unvaccinated, you got to wear a mask, but otherwise, don't worry about it. Magic House, uh, same. Uh, if you're vaccinated, no mask. If you're unvaccinated, you got to get the mask. The Muni is evaluating its policy. Now, I've been a Muni season ticket holder since, oh my goodness, uh, 1992 maybe. And uh, I love the Muni, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they come out with. I'm guessing that they're going to require masks, but uh, I don't think it's required. It's outside, it shouldn't be required. Come on, folks, follow the science. And finally, because I know we're coming up here on a break uh, at the Science Center, actually, Bush Stadium, Bush Stadium, fully vaccinated fans do not need to wear a mask. Of course, you're outdoors, and you got to be able to eat that hot dog and nachos at the stadium. So, Uh, That's the breakdown of some of the area businesses regarding the masks. Hey, coming up after this break, again, we're going to chat with author Lucas Miles about how liberal thought has really hijacked the church in America. Brad Young, sitting in this evening at your service. We'll be right back here on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX.
2: Earning St. Louis's trust for 96 years, this is KMOX.
1: Welcome back to X Radio. Brad Young at your service this evening. And I ran across this book recently, and I just wanted to talk to the author. Pastor Lucas Miles, he's the author of The Christian Left, and uh, uh, and basically talking about how liberal thought has hijacked the church. Uh, Pastor Miles, thanks for joining us this evening on X.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Hey,
1: appreciate you making time for us this evening. I've got a lot of specific questions for you. And if we go a little bit long, I may need to keep you through the break because this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So I've, I've got some specific questions for you, but just foundationally, why, what, what moved you to write this book?
2: You know, I've been uh, a pastor. I started preaching at 17. I'll be 42 this year. So I've been doing this quite a while actually been at the same church, my wife and I, uh, based in South Bend, Indiana, for about the last, uh, going on 17 years. And, you know, I'm in a red state in a blue county. Uh, the mayor here in South Bend was uh, Pete Buttigieg, who ran for uh, uh, Democratic candidate for, uh, for president. Um, and he's a perfect example of the Christian left. And, and we see a lot of this in our community here in South Bend, um, that has, you know, with a very rich history of, of Christianity, especially with the University of Notre Dame in our backyard. Um, but but the, the Christianity that we see has really drifted into uh, sort of a, a progressive ideology. And so we've seen what the New York Times, you know, has called this ascendant liberal Christianity really in our own backyard. And it's not just happening here. I think it's happening around, uh, around the country. And Bible-believing Christians, conservative Christians uh, are noticing this. They're hearing this in the pulpits now. Um, things like critical race theory that are pushed, um, you know, socialism, Marxism, Coming out of the church like never before, and I really felt like I I wanted to do something about it, and and thankfully I felt like the Lord kind of gave me the words to uh, uh, to put together this book, The Christian Left.
1: Very good. And again, we're talking to Pastor Lucas Miles. He's the author of The Christian Left: How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Now, every study over the past few years, including. Uh, the well-known Pew Research study on religion in America. Everyone has shown a consistent downtrend of both church attendance and even the number of people who identify as Christians. Now, when this started, uh, many churches—I know my church was one of them—many churches tried to make their services simpler and easier, you know, just to, to try to attract more people or to appeal to a wider audience. But what has started out as a change in the form of church, I think, has resulted in a change of the function of the church. How would you explain that?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I trace in the book is that, you know, you have the birth of the seeker-sensitive movement in the 80s and 90s and, you know, really produced a lot of our nation's mega churches. And, you know, this isn't necessarily a dig on them. I think that they were making, uh, really doing every effort that they could um, to to make converts and to you know evangelize and share the message and so and they were really good at it and they created a lot of converts, but they they actually struggled making disciples and so with the birth of that seeker sensitive movement, what happened we, we we took away Sunday school, we took away a lot of discipleship making programs uh, and and you know we saw sh- service times you know shorten we saw uh, the number of scriptures read on a Sunday morning decreased and so there began to be this rise in in biblical uh, um, uh, you know, illiteracy. And mm-hmm. and I think that people really, um, it, it would just create the perfect breeding ground for the emerging church to develop because questions weren't being answered. And so the emerging church was really the response to that. It was all of a sudden a whole lot of people asking questions that they'd never been discipled through to be able to answer those things biblically. And then eventually that gave birth to this perfect, uh, um, you know, uh, soil for uh, um, leftism to be able to be introduced into the church, and we are seeing it grow uh, like a weed across this country uh, like never before.
1: You know, a term that, that I've often heard is that churches, many churches embrace what's called a social gospel, and I know you're familiar with that term, but in case others are not, how would you define a social gospel?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, the social, you'll hear social justice, uh, social gospel— uh, you'll also, uh, you know, kind of the secular version of this might be referred to as either critical theory or critical race theory. Uh, it's also known as liberation theology. And basically, a social gospel um, is a gospel that really puts man in the center of the gospel rather than Christ. As believers in Jesus, as people who, um, you know, study the Word of God, uh, you, would, you would see that, that really all of Scripture, all this is about the culmination. Of the the um, death burial and resurrection of Jesus as well as his return for his church and that that you know all of eternity is spent worshiping him and in peace and serenity and 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 joy uh, the social gospel really has very little interest in afterlife about repentance about heaven or hell and it's really focused on 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 sort of alleviating oppression or, or any sort of um, uh, negative circumstance on this earth, whether it be hunger, you know, pain, sickness, et cetera, and and it does so from a very humanistic standpoint. Now, there's a lot of great intentions there. Of course, none of us want those things to happen, uh, but the reality is we don't live in a utopia. We live in a fallen world, and that is a basic tenet of Christianity. We want to do everything that we can to change this world here, um, but to to make Christianity, you know, solely about Uh, Trying to create a utopia here is not Christianity; that's Marxism. Hmm. And and I think it's very important that we realize the difference. And this is basically in my book, I call this social gospel. It's it's really just sort of a Trojan horse that was presented to the church. It sounds very spiritual, but when you start digging into it and you start realizing what's there, it's actually this. uh, It's a perfect weaponized uh, um, gift that the left, I, I believe, is given to Christianity. And out has, has come, it's, it's, you know, instead of an army inside, it's been unpacked with socialism and Marxism and critical race theory and a lot of division, um, you know, over all of these things. And it, it's a very dangerous thing for the church today.
1: You know, a couple of things you mentioned I want to follow back up on. But, of course, we're talking to Pastor Lucas Miles, author of the the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. But you, you mentioned two things that I want to focus back on, Lucas. And that is, first of all, you mentioned about how it's not about us. And I was just reminded of that, that great book by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Church. And the first four words in that book were, it's not about you. And I was just reminded of that whenever you were talking. But the other thing that you mentioned was that you mentioned liberation theology, and and that's something that I've been talking about a lot over the last few years. And in your mind, is there a a philosophical connection between this idea of a social gospel and what's called uh, liberation theology, which in fact was rejected by the Catholic Church as far back as the 1980s?
2: Absolutely. So, so liberation theology it really started uh, was developed uh, I believe in the fifties and sixties. There was a priest named uh, Gutierrez out of uh, South America um, that really you know found sort of this hybrid between Marxism and Christianity. And I show in my book he he although he you know was credited for really developing it. Uh, there were some early forms of this going all the way back to you know arguably the seventeen hundreds in uh, In France, with some social reformers there that that sort of used and leveraged Christianity to promote their agendas, uh, and so you know with a lot of what we see today in critical race theory and in even some of the Marxist activity of BLM and and sort of this Marxist takeover of a uh, of some of the injustices that that they were you know addressing, um, there is a theology behind that, and that theology is very specific. The founders of liberation theology. Uh, both in, in South America as well as the American version of it, which is typically referred to as Black Liberation Theology. There's an individual named James Cone, uh, who I believe is deceased now, but he wrote a book about 50 years ago, uh, regarding sort of the, the, the framework of Black Liberation Theology. Both of those individuals state that what they are introducing um, to Christians is, in fact, another gospel— and it's it's amazing how bold they are in saying this because Scripture tells us in Galatians mm-hmm. that if anybody brings to you a gospel other than the one that Paul shares, the one that Jesus gave us, you know, it actually says let th- let them be eternally condemned. Now that's that's the Bible's words and not mine. Um, but what we see is that they they literally say the Jesus of liberation theology is not the same Jesus that the church has worshipped for the last two thousand years. That is that is almost verbatim, you know, the words that we see in some of their writings, and so. You know, liberation theology is not Christianity. It's an entirely different religion, entirely different, you know, theological structure to it. And and it it does not hold the same tenets. Now, it's called the same thing. And so to, to, you know, uh, maybe the layperson or the person who's not discipled very well, they don't see the distinction. Well, what? They're both Christianity. But when you really actually begin to dig into the philosophy of it, Mm -hmm. they are two entirely different religions altogether.
1: We're talking to Lucas Miles, and Lucas, can you stick with us through the break? We're coming up here on a break, but I've got a lot more
2: questions for you. Would
1: love to. Okay, excellent. Again, we're talking to Lucas Miles, author of The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. We'll be back right after this. Brad Young, at your service on KMOX. Welcome back to KMOX, at your service with Brad Young this evening, talking to Pastor Lucas Miles about the Christian left, how liberal thought has hijacked the church. So uh, thanks for sticking with us through the break. Here, we were talking before the break about the idea of a social gospel. And, and Lucas, I think every Christian would freely admit that feeding the poor and healing the sick are important things to be doing. But if the primary goal of Jesus was to feed the poor and heal the sick, I don't think he succeeded. I mean, everyone he fed, even the 5,000, they were all hungry again in just a few hours— so what does that tell us about the real purpose and mission of Jesus?
2: You know, Jesus also says that the poor you're always going to have with you. You know, basically, he says right from the start that this is not a problem that we can fix. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not a problem that we can make a dent in. And, of course, you know, we can all, uh, you know, grab a hold of that, uh, uh, that starfish, you know, uh, story where, you know, it matters to the one that you uh, throw back into the ocean, rather, even if you can't, uh, you know, save them all. Uh, And that certainly should be the mission of the church. But we have to remember that that the gospel is more than that. Uh, Every single parable, every single story that that we see uh, Jesus tell, there's an element of personal responsibility. And socialism, social gospel, uh, um, you know, critical race theory, all of these things really reject the idea of personal responsibility. Uh, You know, when you look at the social justice gospel or liberation theology, as it's known, um, there is actually not any sort of emphasis on individual sin. In fact, the only sin, uh, um, you know, really according to a uh, liberation theology is a community sin by failing to recognize the oppression of the people or by being on the other side where you oppress the people. Uh, You're not even allowed to ask questions about, Uh, you know, personal sin or moral things in people's lives. This is why uh, an LGBT agenda works very well alongside liberation theology, because individual sin is not an issue within liberation theology. It's not part of their structure, their dogma. It's not part of their religion. And so these, you know, liberation uh, um, theology really allows progressive Christians, or what I call the Christian left in this book, uh, to really read the Bible with what I call whiteout, you know, to, or a magic marker, to sort of, you know, cross out the verses that don't apply to them anymore. And they sort of have really just developed a choose-your-own-adventure religion uh, that, that has some semblance of Christianity, uh, but is really antithetical to the true gospel in every way.
1: Well, what I've heard when I've had this conversation with folks about this idea about the, the liberalization or, the, or the, the left movement of the Church— what has been told to me is well, this is an attempt to attract more people to church this is a this is a way to to make the gospel more attractive to a larger audience of people. but I guess the real question is if it's that, if that has been the purpose, has it been successful
2: you know first of all just i mean there's a lot of things we could do to attract people to church right, right. Uh, you could you could you know uh, give away margaritas when they, people come in the door and you'd get a lot of people to show up. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing that we should be doing in order to attract people to church. And so when we look at something like liberation theology, to only justify it uh, just because, you know, uh, it maybe allows us to widen the net a little bit, if we're not actually bringing them into something that can, that can allow them to uh, be introduced to salvation, then it's not very successful. Mm. So as a pastor and as a Christian— you know, my goal isn't just to get people inside the church. It's to get them to be able to experience the person of Jesus Christ. The problem with liberation theology is it's not introducing them to the person of Jesus Christ. It's introducing them to victimhood. It's introducing them to a, a, uh, um, uh, uh, a gospel that is completely in opposition to the gospel of God's grace. In, in liberation theology, it's, it's a gospel of works. You'll hear this all the time, whether it be somebody like uh, uh, D'Angelo's White Fragility, uh, or, you know, other resources that are out there, uh, Cohn's work in Black Liberation Theology, is you'll hear that the job is for people to do the work. Well, what's the work? It's basically an ongoing uh, continuation of things, especially as, you know, uh, um, you know, an individual that, you know, somebody could say, well, you're, you're privileged because of the color of your skin or whatever that be, then I have a, a perpetual job of doing the work to try to do what? To earn salvation, to earn redemption, to earn forgiveness, which liberation theology never offers. There is no conversation about forgiveness uh, within liberation theology, and this is one of the many issues of the Christian left and, and it, 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 where they have introduced these and, and sort of made allegiances and alliances with progressive ideology and, and really you know a, a liberal philosophy in, in almost every single way. Well,
1: one of the ways that I've tried to make that distinction as I teach Bible study in my own church has been to say that that uh, uh, from the world's perspective, or even from the, the many times the left's perspective, that salvation comes strictly through works. If you do good things, then you're a good person. And yet, we know from Scripture that we're called first to salvation, and then from that salvation comes good works. And you you can't get those uh, you can't get the cart before the horse, as it were, because the order in in this instance is extremely important. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Absolutely. You know, Marxism teaches basically that people are mostly good, but that the system is bad. And, you know, Christianity says that people are bad and Mm. the system is bad, you know, that everything is fallen (laughs) and, and that there is total depravity, that, you know, Romans says that there's no one righteous, not even one. And so when we really, I mean, the whole tenet of the gospel, in order to accept a Savior, I have to acknowledge that I need a Savior. And the problem with liberation theology is they it, it, it does it never acknowledges their need individually for a savior. It acknowledges the community's need for a savior, but it does not acknowledge their need. You're never going to hear a Christian leftist, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, talk about things like heaven and hell, forgiveness of sins, personal, you know, uh, um, you know, forgiveness, uh, redemption. Um, You know, repentance, all of these things. Why? Because it doesn't align. It's not actually part of their theology. It's not part of their doctrine. And so, you know, Christianity, if we are truly believers in Christ, we what? We acknowledge our need for a Savior. We realize, apart from God's grace, that I have nothing going for me, that I deserve, you know, hellfire eternal. And it's only by the grace of God, by grace through faith, Ephesians says, that I'm able to be saved, not by my works and certainly not by my effort in trying to, you know, uh, correct the system in some way. Just two
1: questions for you, and then we'll wrap this up this evening. We're talking to Pastor Lucas Miles, author of The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And if the church becomes more aligned with something like the United Way, in other words, if it starts to look more and more like the United Way rather than the gospel of, of Christ, at what point does it really stop being the church and just become another charity?
2: You know, I think we have that uh, already existing within some of our denominations. Uh, you know, it's certainly, look, I'm an optimist. I believe that God wins in the end, but that doesn't mean that Christianity in America always thrives. And we've seen Christianity struggle in other countries. We've seen Europe go through kind of a dark uh, season within, within her churches. And so uh, I think that we have to be sober-minded and realizing that just because you know, God redeems the church doesn't mean that uh, the church in America is necessarily going to you know accelerate at the, the the rate that we would want it to, and so this should cause you know uh, conservative-minded uh, Christians, biblically-minded Christians, to really step up and realize our role. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why you know I wrote this book was to help educate people. Um, you know, it was I believe it was uh, the church father Irenaeus who he wrote a book in 100. Uh, 80 A.D. and the book was called Against Heresies. And one of the things he talks about in that book was the Gnostic, uh, um, the rise of Gnosticism within the first century church. And of course, we see that written about in the New Testament. And and he said that the reason why the first century church struggled to refute Gnosticism is because they didn't fully understand it. And that is that inspired me in writing this book is because I feel like a lot of people don't fully understand critical race theory and liberation theology and and progressive Christianity, and and ultimately the Christian left, and because of that we're struggling to be able to refute their arguments. And so what I try to do in this book is really provide sort of that roadmap through each one of these issues to really help people be drawn back to biblical Orthodox Christianity, and to ensure that they don't get off track and that their churches don't get off track in the process.
1: Last question for you, Pastor Luke Miles, is this. Uh, someone may be listening to this and saying, well, how do I know if my church has drifted into this uh, liberal theology conundrum? How, how would I know? So what kind of uh, uh, terminology, what kind of, uh, uh, of guidance can you give that person for them to figure out whether or not their church is or is not embracing this leftist theology?
2: Yeah, I I call these the canary in the cage. You know, it's what we're looking for that tell us that there's a problem overall in the whole institution uh, that we're attending. And, you know, some some churches are just starting to maybe drift left and there can be some course correction with some solid conversations with leadership. Other churches have really gone full blown on, you know, uh, Christian leftists here, and so we need to be aware of that. I would look at things like: what does the church teach about salvation? Do they still give individual altar calls, or you know, is that at you know some sort of postmodern response to salvation instead? Uh, what does the church view about uh, uh, pro-life and abortion issues? Do they still stand for the sanctity of life uh, in the womb? That's an important marker to be able to see where people still stand. Uh, where do they where do they you know land on the whole issue of a biblical view? Of gender and sexuality? Have they sort of thrown that away and really embraced more of a progressive ideology on those things? Uh, These things all begin to tell us where the Church stands. And really what they ultimately point to is, does the Church believe in the infallibility of Scripture? Because in order to downgrade some of those issues and those biblical definitions, really what's happening is I'm actually downgrading my view of the Bible. And so if I'm letting go of the Bible as being the Word of God, that's the only way that somebody could embrace Christian leftism. Is, is because they have let go of the Bible as being the source of truth, and they've started grabbing hold of, really, voices in the world and amplifying those and elevating them above God's Word.
1: Very good. Pastor Luger, Lucas Miles, author of the book The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Thanks so much for joining us this evening on KMOX.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: And uh, we'll be back. KMOX at your service. We'll be back right after this.
2: Trusted information, live and local. From the award-winning KMOX Newsroom.
1: Welcome back to At Your Service. Hey, thanks for sticking with us this evening. And uh, phone lines are open. What's on your mind this evening? Uh, Open lines, whatever you want to talk about, I'm here for you. 314-436-7900. Normally, I like to get texts as well. Our text line's kind of buggy tonight. So uh, if you've got something on your mind... Give us a call, 314-436-7900. Bill Gates, boy, things have really changed for him in the last couple of weeks, haven't they? <laughs> he went from, um, I mean, just on the financial side, uh, he's hes going to be going from the, I think, the second richest person on the planet He's going to be dropping pretty significantly. Of course, it's not like he's going to be missing any meals. It's not like he's going to be, you know, getting a janitorial job somewhere uh, because he's going to be uh, broke or anything. But that's not the case. But just think about it from his public persona perspective. I mean, if I were to ask you three weeks ago, just tell me what words you would use to describe Bill Gates. What words would you use? This is three, four weeks ago. I I just jotted down a couple that came to my mind. He's a nerd. Of course, he's always going to be a nerd. A do-gooder, likable, uber-wealthy, sweater-obsessed, liberal. Uh, Those are just some of the things that come to my mind. But but now, after all of these allegations started coming out over the last few weeks, uh, uh, in the midst of this divorce— Now he's a guy that gets involved, allegedly, with office affairs. Uh, He's the uncomfortable workplace behavior guy. Apparently he would say things that were really uncomfortable uh, to other coworkers, which is why Microsoft asked him to step down. Uh, And plus he's been a little too close to Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know what you make out of that, but uh, uh, that's one of the things that has been widely reported that Mrs. Uh, Gates, Melinda Gates, uh, didn't like. He was too good of friends with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. So, uh, but what's interesting to me is is that divorce cases can literally change history. They can change history, and I'm going to give you a classic example. You're going to think I'm making this up, uh, producer Nathan. You're going to think I'm just completely making this up. But everything I'm going to tell you right now is the absolute truth, and that is. Star Trek gave us President Barack Obama. Star Trek did. Now, Producer Nathan's looking at me like, "Yeah, I'm not with you on this one, Brad. You're going to have to explain it to me. So let me just briefly break it down how a Star Trek character resulted in us having President Barack Obama. So let me take you back. I'm from Illinois, and I followed all this stuff very, very carefully whenever it was in the midst of it. So let me take you back briefly, to I believe it was 2004. Uh, Illinois had an investment banker by the name of Jack Ryan, no relation to the Tom Clancy character, but his name was Jack Ryan, and he was an investment banker, very wealthy. He was a shoe in, a shoe in to be the next senator, U.S. senator from the state of Illinois. You know, back in Illinois, back when they could actually elect Republicans over there, uh, he was going to be the next senator from Illinois. This was in 2004. But he was he had a very attractive wife. His wife was Jerry Ryan. Now, if that name doesn't mean anything to you, if you've ever watched Star Trek, particularly Star Trek Voyager, she was Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager. And um let me how do I put this in good taste and uh, morality? Well, her outfit was painted on and um and she was always obvious in every scene that she was in on Star Trek Voyager. If you've ever seen the show, you know exactly who I'm talking about. She's blonde, and she was uh, on the show. Anyway, she got divorced from Jack Ryan in 1999. And when they got divorced, their records were sealed. But you know what? The, uh, uh, the Chicago Tribune, uh, they filed a lawsuit to get those records released, And there was a lot of salacious things in those records about activities that he asked her to do in public that she didn't want to do. Well, all of this came out and he went from a double digit lead over this unknown state senator. Nobody had ever heard of him named Barack Hussein Obama. And so uh, no one thought, who's going to vote for a guy with a Muslim sounding name to be uh, in the U.S. Senate? And so he was just he was getting single digits in the polls. Uh, He was the Democrat challenger. Jack Ryan was the Republican challenger. And uh, eventually, when these salacious details came out, Jack Ryan had to withdraw from the race. Barack Obama went on to win a huge victory to go to the U.S. Senate. And then he spent the next four years in the U.S. Senate running for the presidency. And then he became the president of the United States in 2008. So were it not for Star Trek and Jerry Ryan getting divorced from Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan would have been elected. We never would have heard of Barack Hussein Obama. He certainly wouldn't have been president in 2008, probably never president. And so when you think about it, the divorce case from a Star Trek character resulted in President Barack Hussein Obama. So, yes, divorce cases can literally change history. Now, I'm not making any of that up. You can independently verify Every point that I just told you, it's not a conspiracy theory. It doesn't involve aliens. It just involves, you know, a Star Trek character. And, and of course, I'm a Star Trek geek. So uh, so I was uh, very much aware of this when it was happening, following it very closely. And, uh, and I just think it's amazing how this can change the world. Now, we're already seeing uh, the former Mrs. Bezos. I mean, she's using her money philanthropically. Uh, Jeff Bezos was never much of a philanthropist. Uh, although he was a lot, apparently he was quite the philanderer, apparently, but he was never quite the philanthropist. So we're seeing Mrs. Bezos do that. I expect uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gates to continue doing that, And, uh, and so maybe the world won't change quite as much as it did when Jack Ryan divorced from Jerry Ryan, seven of nine on Deep Space Nine, actually on Star Trek Voyager. Brad Young sitting in here tonight at your service on Camo X. We'll be right back.